The Mahe Mysteries is brought to you in association with Seychelles Tourism from the land of tradition, mystery and endless surprise. For more information, visit www.seychelles.travel. Mahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Newhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. All that remains. Episode 3. It was just past noon when I returned to the cottage and parked the moke, the perspiration level at maximum power. At any time of year, Mahe is balmy. At certain points, it's both balmy and wet, the heavy tropical downpours nurturing its lush abundance while providing enough atmospheric moisture to ensure you'll blow an internal bodily gasket if foolish enough to overexert yourself. So life is lived slowly, a deliberate act of self-preservation. Only newly arrived expats and tourists with their tennis rackets disregard the necessity to move with the enervated grace of Seychelles' famous giant tortoises, a fact that is easily mistaken in the local workforce for laziness by the uninitiated. I had spent the drive home pondering the words of Père Maurice and struggling to understand how in anyone's mind he, or events in his past, could somehow be linked with the discovery of the skulls. But someone had most definitely made that link, leaving it writ large on his sacristy. In particular, I was curious to clarify what historic events early in his ministry were now resurfacing and had prompted the diocese to suspend him. The Church's recent reputation in such matters leaned towards tardiness, even reluctance. So whatever allegation had driven the order for him to step back must have been grave indeed. But whether it concerned actual graves, the unburying of the dead, was unclear. A past sexual transgression seemed far more likely, as the Comtesse had indicated. However poorly such behaviour appeared to accord with the old priest's solemn demeanour. The certainty of Marie-Alise de Chalis intrigued me, and I knew well that the Comtesse's connections among Mahe's so-called Grand Blanc families were second to none. She was part of the island's white aristocracy, which gave her both privileged access to power and state secrets, but also to servants, tenants, and village tittle-tattle. However, since the end of the colonial era and the beginning of jet travel that had ushered in tourism and driven the old copra plantations such as hers into bankruptcy, high birth was no longer a guarantee of liquid wealth and much of what might have remained vanished completely during the country's dark decade and a half of terror during its socialist one-party state. 
land and breeding were all she had left. But the Comtesse had heard something, I felt certain, enough to force an Englishman, if not his much saner dogs, out into the midday sun to find her. I took the looping path from the cottage through the trees that Sebastien and I had trod in darkness the previous evening, a gloomy and dripping trail now, even in broad daylight. As I turned towards the Grand Case, where it was joined by a shorter, more direct, but much overgrown path, I found the garden boy, machete in hand, slashing back creepers that had started encroaching upon the Comtesse's enclosure of volubly amorous giant tortoises. Get ça, Samuel, tassion. You'll be putting poor old Napoleon off his stroke. He's probably trying to get lucky with his Josephine for a bit of noontime nookie. You think? The boy laughed, wiping away sweat from his brow, his grin revealing two rows of dazzling white teeth. His scarlet T-shirt was soaked through to reveal a musculature that would not have disgraced the cover of many of my favourite top-shelf publications. The pendant of a thin gold necklace was framed by two magnificent pectorals. He went on, Madame has told me to get this done by tea time or I'm for the high jump. He laughed again, easy in his apparent unawareness of how he was making my day. Have you swapped sides? I asked mischievously. The laughter stopped abruptly, and he lowered a brow to peer at me with suspicion. The boy, though barely out of his teens, hadn't come down with the last rain shower. His tone was instantly serious. How do you mean, Monsieur Patrick, swapped sides? I thought you were an LDS man, a party supporter to your fingertips. But of course, what makes you think I would join those SPPF dogs? I would rather slit my own throat. He brandished the glinting machete in front of my face. Your T-shirt. What about my T-shirt? He asked, tugging the saturated fabric that clung tightly to his impressive torso and looked down to inspect it nervously. I thought an LDS supporter would sooner die than be seen wearing anything red. It's true, he said, releasing the disordered cotton. We never would. We're green all the way. LDS all my life and forever, Mondelon. Tick on l'air. I raised an eyebrow. Despite the years I had spent in Seychelles, there were still regular moments watching and listening to its people that completely mystified me. Sometimes it was better not to ask too much. Offence was easily taken, and too many personal inquiries were often best avoided. Out of a strong desire not to fertilise his concern about my apparently sudden interest in his apparel, or more, I changed the subject. Tell me, Samuel, why hasn't Madame asked you to clear the shorter path between her place and ours? It's completely overgrown. Do you know Kipling? They shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again, and now you would never know there was once a road through the woods. He looked at me puzzled. The old path you're talking about? Toto's path? Who is Toto? 
Otto was the, the gardener for Madame before I was born, long, long time ago. Sure, I said. Toto's path. Why doesn't she clear it? It makes perfect sense. He thought about the question for a moment before responding. I can't answer that, Imsir Patrick. All I know is no one has used the path since Toto disappeared. I asked Madame if she wanted me to make a new path through, but she said no. She, she told me to leave it. She told me to leave Toto's path exactly as it is and let nature take it back. I left him soon after and continued to the Grand Cas, where I found the Countess taking a lemonade break from potting out cuttings. The gossamer gown of the evening before had been supplanted by a mud-smeared chemise and shorts. I'm sorry you find me in such disarray, Patrick, she said. I wasn't expecting company, but I hope you'll join me in some refreshment. She poured me a glass. I wanted to ask you more about the matter we were discussing last evening, I said. You seemed very certain that the skulls were somehow signposting child abuse in the Catholic Church. I went to see Père Maurice this morning at Pantocell. Some kids have plastered his church in graffiti, accusing him of, well, this and that. Why doesn't that surprise me in the least, she said. But it's not the church in general. It's Père Maurice. So you've spoken to him. Well, let me tell you, Patrick, he is a disgusting creature. I'm not the slightest bit shocked to hear that reptile has been suspended by the diocese. I don't know about the rest of them, but he's the worst. Père Maurice? I was caught off guard by her vehemence. Oh, don't be fooled by him, she said. Everybody knows. Everybody who's anybody, at least. He was our family priest, but not for many years. The de Chalice family will have nothing to do with him now or ever. You can ask around, and perhaps you'll find one or two who'll tell you, but I won't say any more. Speak to my daughter, Angelique, the one at Internal Affairs. You'll have to take your notepad, lick your pencil, and ask her. But I assure you, Maurice is a very dirty bugger. As the island's most photographed landmark, the silver-painted clock tower in the centre of Mahe's tiny capital, Victoria, was striking four o'clock, I was waiting in the outer office of the Internal Affairs Department, a few hundred yards away, for an appointment to see its principal secretary, Angelique de Chalice. She apologised for keeping me waiting as I entered her small but excessively tidy and fragrant office overlooking Independence Avenue. We exchanged greetings and I sat. Angelique, in a grey trouser suit, pushed back a lolling tress of chestnut hair and listened as I dived straight into the matter on my mind. Does she indeed said Angelique at last, when I'd explained her mother's theory. Well, Mr Muirhead, you know how my mother is, but I'm afraid I can offer you no confirmation if that's what you've come for. My mother's theories on this and many other things are her own. I cannot speak to them, she said primly. 
Your mother seems convinced, I said. I'm sure she does, but as I've said, I have nothing to say about Père Maurice. I hardly know the man. I know who he is, of course, but I'm not sure we've ever spoken. And to be perfectly honest, I really don't think it's quite appropriate that you should be asking me this. I nodded thoughtfully. And now forgive me, I have a 4.30 with my minister. We parted, but I lingered a moment in the outer office, appearing to busy myself by skimming through old text messages on my mobile, as the principal secretary buzzed through to her assistant. Nerissa, get my sister on the phone, would you please? said the voice from the intercom. The secretary regarded me warily. I slipped my phone into my pocket, and within a few minutes had retrieved the moke from the car park and was on my way home through the rush hour traffic and over the mountain to the De Chalice estate. For much of the journey, I found myself trapped behind an infuriatingly slow-moving flatbed laden with granite blocks as it laboured up the impassably narrow and winding route to the summit. Its driver appeared to be standing on the brakes as it then made an excruciating descent on the other side. But at Grandance petrol station, where the mountain road meets the coastal route, it turned away north to my immense relief, and there, as the road opened and meandered south through the overhanging palms and sculptural Bananvoisere, I found myself following Hortense Gontier's distinctive and generously dented old red Suzuki. I recognised it at once. The Comtesse has three children, as far as I know. Angelique, the eldest, and easily the most obviously admired by her mother, and much of the country's population. Whether in fact such respect for principal secretaries of government is sincere, or a figment of necessity. And Hortense Gontier, her second child, now divorced. Little is said of Mr. Gontier whenever the Comtesse mentions her, perhaps on account of local custom. Despite my acclimatization, many mysteries remain about the conventions of behavior in Seychelles, as I've already said. And there's a younger brother, Frédéric, whose unfortunate life we shall come to shortly. But my attention was captured by Hortense's superannuated Suzuki, and I followed it until it passed the track to our beach house. I turned off the main road, the moke bumping down the way through the old coconut trees, where I dumped it and literally ran through the plantation, just in time to catch Hortense pulling up to the Grand Cas. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. The Mahe Mysteries is brought to you in association with Seychelles Tourism from the land of tradition, mystery and endless surprise. For more information, visit www.seychelles.travel. 
Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.